I will bring it back bigger and better and stronger than ever before, and we will make America great again. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hey there, Couch Explorers. It's Jason McCoy, your host and friendly guide to today's show. On Put Them on the Couch, we're going to explore a very enigmatic topic, one that's mired in controversy and oftentimes misunderstanding. We call it the Trump effect. That's right. We're going to be asking all the questions specifically related to what makes Trump so popular? What's his appeal? Why the rock star status? Why almost the messianic following? Is there any precedent for understanding this? Is there any parallels historically? I'll turn to my co-host and confidant, Mr. Nelson, the poli and history guy, to give us some more behind the scenes on that. So, what's the real magic behind this political enigma? Stick with us as we unpack this strange, twisted, and odd personality of a man. Today, on Put Him on the Couch, The Trump Effect. All right, we are back, ladies and gentlemen, and back Indeed. in the studio beside me, I have my friend, confidant, and former bird watcher, Nelson Boyer. Mr. Nelson Boyer. It's a golf thing. It's a golf thing. Hey, do you know what a hole in one on a par four is called? Uh, triple bogey. It's a condor. A condor, very nice. Keeping the golf theme. Listen, we don't do this enough, but I want to give a special shout out to our listeners, Nelson, for whom. If it weren't for, we wouldn't have this show. No, we would. But we would. But it'd we be would. like a tree falling in the woods. It'd Nobody be one of those would. weird metaphors. Yeah. I want everyone to know that we've been doing this now nearly eight and a half months, and we are pushing right up against our first year's goal, which was 5,000 downloads. We are going to hit that number in the next couple of weeks, specifically because of people like you. Thanks to those of you who have been listening. Thanks to those of you that have been sharing, liking, and listen, if I could ask a big, 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 big favor, whether you listen on Spotify or Apple, please rate and review us. In fact, you don't even have to review us. Just hit one of those stars, preferably the fifth star, if you would. That actually helps create visibility on the Apple and Spotify playlist charts. Now, I want everyone to know I'm very excited. If you haven't already heard, put them on the couch, broke into the top 100. Yes. That's right. Yes. Top 100 for science, social science last week. And of course, we quickly went right out of the top 100, catapulting back out of even 200 for a while there. But Nelson, I'm proud to say we are pushing right up against that it's 100 again. It's an upward trajectory. We're pushing right up against that 100 mark. Hopefully, we'll break back into the top 100 again with the help and support of listeners like you. Now, today on the show, what in the world is going on with Donald Trump? What isn't going on? We call it the Trump Trump effect. What isn't going on with President Trump, former President Trump, future President Trump? I don't know. It's uh, it seems like everything in politics revolves around the ideas and the 
opinions of a single person. Um, yeah, it's almost like manifested he is in the, millions. the opposite side of the same coin. Taylor Swift's on one side and he's the other. It's the Trump effect and the Taylor Swift effect, right? Yeah, that's but all maybe that's going in, on in right some now. ways, maybe it's the same effect, right? I mean, we talked about Taylor Swift and people connecting with her because mm-hmm. they saw something true in themselves. And I think that's true of a lot of movement politicians. Yeah, I think you might be right. I think that um, too often people um, misunderstand or maybe they don't take the time to appreciate that 50% of people can't be completely delusional or wrong. That's uh, true. Trump has 50% of Americans supporting him in one way, shape, form, or fashion, right? I'm not saying they're all following uh, the Trump cult. I'm not saying they're all delusional. But they are saying, you know what, we want to give him one more turn at this thing. Yeah. And uh, I'm assuming they see something in him. Uh, absolutely. Something that obviously... Um, people like myself, admittedly, and maybe 50% of other Americans just absolutely don't see in him. Yeah, I mean, 100%. And, and look, part of that, I think, part of it, not all of it, part of it is the negative polarization that we see in our politics generally. Sure. This idea that it doesn't matter who this, who our guy is, we're voting against the other guy. Yeah, and that and way it's sort of like an NFL football game, isn't it? Doesn't yeah, matter who's on no. the team. I mean, it's just one jersey against another jersey. Who who um, have you picked to be your team? Yeah, but we still root for our jersey. We're that's not right. rooting for our jersey here. We're rooting against the other jersey, and that is that's an important distinction. Uh, nobody is. I don't think any. I mean, now there is. There are people. There's who, a little relent, revenge, a little rivalry in football. Come on now. There are people who are rooting specifically for Donald Trump. Right. And and maybe there are some who are rooting specifically for Joe Biden, but by and large, rooting talk, against one I mean look them. at the look at the polling. The American people hate this race. Yeah. Uh, and yet they're they're into it, they're attuned to it. So, you know, this negative polarization, this otherism, this idea that the opposite party, the people with opposing values, opposing thoughts are, you know, evil, are wrong. I mean, this is it's hyperheated and it has been for a while. Um, but you know, Trump is like that blowhard air bag that lights the fire even yeah. further, that fans the flames. So we, so we love to hate. We love we to do. hate. We love I to guess. root against. I don't, know. I don't we love, love to the hate. shade and broad. Um, we like to own. I guess you, you've heard the saying "own the libs." I haven't heard the saying "own the conservatives," but I have heard "own the libs." What do you think this comes from? I mean, the Trump effect in my mind when I when I decided. We would do something like this. And I came to you and I said, let's call it the Trump effect. Admittedly, it was kind of a gimmick. I said, well, we had the Taylor Swift effect and that podcast episode did really well. So why don't we use the same thing and call it the Trump effect? But then as I began thinking about it a little more, I said, well, that might actually help focus us today as well. Certainly when people think about the Trump effect, I think it's no doubt they think about the man and the politician, the image, the personality, right? The, right? What does he have? What does he say? What does he feel? What does he do that is so appealing to so many? But I don't think we can um, do an episode like this without at least mentioning the opposite of that. So for every supporter that looks at Trump and goes, yep, I like that, or listens to him and says, yes, I like what he says, there's a detractor. There's some critic that says, ugh, see, that's what I'm talking about. He's a buffoon, or he's a liar, or he's a grifter, or he's a con man. I think maybe you you said it already. The Trump effect is this amazing ability, either purposefully or accidentally, that Trump possesses that helps either further polarize us or at least stay polarized. Well, I think think we're talking about... 
So I, I think the polarization piece has nothing to do or very little to do with Trump, except that he amplifies it, right? Okay, yeah. I think we have We're to, already polarized. I, I, I think we have to break the Trump effect into two separate camps. The okay. people who absolutely, and, and maybe I don't really know what percentage this is, yeah, but yeah. the people who absolutely love President Trump. They're following as who, if he's the Messiah, he, he's who, the second coming. Right, who mm-hmm. when he tweets on like, uh, or truth socials, yeah, I don't know. They're there. Or truths social, yeah, I don't yeah. know how we say that. Should only but, be one truth. Uh, unless, unless he posts when when he posts on like Veterans Day, yeah. Happy Veterans Day to our great veterans. We promise to you, we're going to root out the, the evil the doers, vermin, the, the Marxists. Like, what to me, um, that is horrifying. Like mm-hmm. that 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 is fascist language. There's those no people question. that like that's that, that find that yeah, yeah. The, appealing. They, yeah. Uh, but there are, yeah, there's a group who are like, woo, yeah, you know, yeah. do a pants off dance. Right, right. Who just can't believe this is so awesome. Yeah, this that's is my incredible. Man. I like him. What per, I don't know what percentage of Trump supporters they I don't, make I up. guess I don't think it really matters. I mean, it's, it does matter. It's clearly less than fifty percent, and no more than fifty percent. And but see, but here's the thing: everybody who votes for Trump is not into like that. that. No, but I don't think we'll ever get those, right? I don't think the liberals will ever get those. I don't think there's anything we can no, do, no. On, on, those, at least not in those, our lifetime. Those that people can, are fully gone. on board. They have bought in to every single yeah. thing that the president says. Fine. Okay. But how many people who are holding out there their voting, noses, at, out there voting for, for him? Exactly. What, what percent? And. What effect has he had on those yeah. people and on the broader political electorate? So I think there's two effects. Yeah. Well, I would say. Um, what do you think? One is the- very easy to dismiss and easy not to even try to come up with an explanation for, and easy not to even try to fight for the soul of right. And that's the ones that are the fanatics, the true believers, the zealots, right? Again, it's like trying to tell a Swifty that Taylor Swift's not the, the greatest greatly, person yeah. ever. It's trying to tell a child that Santa doesn't exist, right? But the others, to your point, uh, I guess these would be. Uh, people who are Republicans by heart in some way, shape, form, or fashion. They are in some way, shape, form, or fashion an institutionalist, um, somewhat of an orthodox. Uh, they they still think about some of the old Republican guard when they yeah. when they when they vote for Trump, and so they're thinking about in some way the grand old party, and maybe you know they're they're hanging in there and thinking, well, Trump is just. Um, one person, eight years. That's a lot of hanging. It is a lot of hanging, but That's I mean, come on, true hanging. believer, not true believers, but real fans of say the Republican party, like a real fan of, I don't know, the Dallas Cowboys. You hang in there, right? You say, well, we'll ride as Jerry Jones just said, we'll ride Dax Prescott as far as he can take us and no, no further. <laughs> Likewise, maybe they're thinking we'll ride Trump as far as he'll take us. I mean, and what did he do? He did take them to the presidency. He did, Help them restore power in the Supreme Court. Yeah, he did, oh yeah, I mean, he did yeah. do quite a few things that they want. Yeah, um, and turns and, and when you talk about Wall Street, I mean, he played right into their hands. So I've talked donor class. I've spoken to a number of evangelical Christians mm-hmm. who, you know, you have an obvious problem with his personal behavior, right? One would think. But here's what here's what most of them, not all of them, mm-hmm. most of them tell me. Yeah, that. In order to fight evil, you need somebody who is not really bound by Christian principles. Ah, uh, they can't play by the rules. They sometimes. can't play by the rules. Nobody else is playing by the so rules. So there's this appeal mm. for a lot of evangelicals I have spoken to yeah. who do not approve of Trump's behavior. Yeah, that's the that, Frankenstein's monster argument, isn't it? It's, I don't know. What's that? Uh, well, what's you that know, argument? 
Well, the Frankenstein monster argument, as I understand it, goes a little something like this. He's an idiot. He's a buffoon. He's a vile and vulgar person. He doesn't play by the rules. Maybe he is a con man and grifter, but he's ours. Okay. I've like, never heard that before. So likewise, I'm the monster that Dr. Frankenstein created, right, in Dr. Frankenstein's eyes was his monster. Right. So, again, you, you have heard that. You've heard things around the edges of that where people would say, look, Trump's, Trump's just um, a vehicle. Trump's just the mouthpiece. Trump's just the show. Trump's just the, the celebrity, the personality. He's helped us garner power and, and more support. I mean, no doubt he's helped solidify this base like nobody has in my life. Oh, absolutely. He is Republican a, he is a did movement. not have a base like this. He is a movement politician. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and a populist, mo- if you mo- want to use that term, he's absolutely a populist, but definitely this is a, a movement and movement politics, movement politicians are far uh, more powerful. They have far you know greater durability. Now than I do, I do take, typical politics. I do take, um, I guess some, not offense, but I'm a little concerned about the word movement here. You don't mean literally as in moving and shaping and shaking and growing, because I mean, it is true that he has maybe grown the base a little bit when he first started. But I don't think there's any evidence that he's growing the base at all by this point. But he has solidified it to the point where you can be almost 100% sure that most of his voters are going to come out and vote for him, no matter what he does or what he says. When I say movement, I'm talking about in the context Energy. of a hostile takeover of okay. the former Republican Party. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. That is that is what I am talking about. Yeah. And it is nearly complete. I mean, yeah. think back to 2015 with Lindsey Graham mm-hmm. um, hitting a golfing, you know, hitting a, a swing a golf club at a cell phone. Yeah. Right. After Trump gave away Lindsey Graham's cell phone number. How funny yeah. is this? Yeah. Uh, think back to... Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz had his father's name dragged through the mud. His own wife. His own wife made fun of, right? Uh, Called Trump a sniveling cow, refused to endorse Trump Mm -hmm. at the convention, told people that they should vote for somebody who has honor and value. And he has since. And now he's recanted, repented, kissed the ring, right? He's a a toady, right? He's he's all in. He He is all in. And so... That's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about a movement. I'm talking about a grassroots group that is pushing and directing the elected masses to do as they want. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if they make up a majority, but I know that the if they're not a majority, the majority that does exist has proven incapable of redirecting the party in any direction that resembles the old guard that you spoke of. So prior to Trump, did you or anyone you read say that there was room for more, more energy, more movement, more um, strength, more of a voice in either party? Like well, th- prior to Trump, yeah, sure. were, were there people sure. out there going, look, the Republican Party could use a shot in the arm. The Democratic Party could use a shot in the arm. I think you really have to go back to – I think Trump um, did not start – the, I mean, he would tell you he started the MAGA movement. Yeah. Of course, he he came up. He didn't even come up with the phrase "Make America Great Again." No, of course right? he didn't. That it's, was it's that's in, recycled. Many that's times. been used many, many times. So, um, I think you have to go back to 2009. Okay. And the beginnings of the Tea Party. Mm-hmm. And I really think that you have to 
look at the energy behind that movement, the anger behind that movement. And what I think President Trump did was, like I said, he fanned the flames. He tapped into it. He put some oxygen into that fire mm-hmm. and, and watched it grow. And, you know, he's leading the parade now. But I would say that that question of, well, was there a way to energize the Republican Party, the Democratic Party? I would Did say people that recognize that, started, that it needed it and that it could be, yeah, it could be two, done? I would say 2009, okay. 2010. And have we seen anything like that, maybe other than Obama uh, doing the same thing or similar thing to the Democratic oh, Party? Well, you've seen it throughout American history. I, no, I just to, meant recently, relatively recently. Um, no, I would say Obama's a, a good Example. analogy. And I don't want to confuse our listeners or to have some sort of false equivalency. I'm no, not no, saying no. that President Obama's appeal is... Like, likened l- to Likened Trump, to right. President Trump's. It's very we different. We, yeah. But it's still, if you if you want to compare it, there's an energy about both of them. There's sure. A, there's almost a messianic sort of belief in these, these followers. There's... Um, maybe this, again, hope, this hope for tomorrow being different. Yes, right? but I will say that because President Obama's, the, the Democratic coalition um, today and really since it started winning national elections on a consistent basis since 1992, the Democratic coalition is really varied mm-hmm. and you, you don't find a lot that binds them together. So very quickly after President Obama's victory, you know, people thought hope and change meant whatever they thought it meant. And President Obama had different ideas. Sure. And I think people became, Democrats became, you know, disillusioned fairly quickly. Right. Um, and, and dropped the messianic uh, you know, appeal. There was a meteoric rise there. It was mm-hmm. exciting to be a but part didn't of. Didn't quite have the same staying power. Didn't really have the same staying power because the policies are very different, and there's no, there was no enemy in the Obama mm-hmm. movement. the The enemy was cynicism, which you know can't really be vanquished. So going back to his supporters, I mean, we didn't really go into any detail about this, and I think we'd be remiss if we sort of glossed over this. But to my mind, the Trump effect has a lot to do with, again, Trump's appeal. And we're talking specifically about to any follower. You were mentioning that there's different kinds of, of Trump supporters, right? Well, let's just take the the diehard supporters. What do you believe is the thing that they like most about him? What do they see in him? I mean, you said you've talked to some of them. What do they tell you? What, what can you glean from the, this, the, this now, rabid, zealous support? I, I've talked to some uh, tepid Okay. Trump supporters, um, because I, I want to know, you know, I, I just have an innate curiosity mm-hmm. to, you know, to find out what, what, what exactly is, is, how can you ignore these obvious personal flaws? Right. It's clear and, you're and holding your nose, flaws. right? Yeah, and so maybe looking how, out the way sometimes. How can you, how can you justify somebody who's civilly liable? Uh, that the and that, that gets to that negative polarization that the other side is so dangerous. That, oh, they play the whataboutism. Yeah. Card. Well, the funny thing is, they say things to me that, um, you know, like, well, look how bad the squad is. Yeah, mm-hmm. the squad hates Joe Biden. Yeah, yeah. Well, the the funny thing is that Joe Biden is actually really a, a moderate politician. Right. Despised by the left flank of his own party, look at Israel and Hamas. Mm-hmm. Uh, look at you know any number of policy differences they have with them. Uh, look at this this immigration potential immigration package right now before mm-hmm. uh, the U.S. Senate. You know, so 
there's this rejection of President Biden on the left, mm-hmm. and then on the on the right, regardless of if you're big pro Trump, mm-hmm. tepid Trump, whatever. On the right, you have people who are saying we can't have Joe Biden because of that far left. Sure. So uh, you know, I think that's his biggest problem. When you look at his poll numbers and stuff, he, I think that's his issue. I think people are just so afraid or you know made to fear the far left in this country that they'll take a President Trump as necessary, a necessary evil. Well, I do talk to and hear from regularly those people that are more evangelical, more um, true Trump believers. And, you you and talk to evangelicals who are, course, tr- who are true Trump yes, believers? Yeah. And let me tell you who wow. they are. They are working class. They always have been working class. They're from, you know, mostly the state of South Carolina. Uh, they're my high school friends and and acquaintances. Uh, I still hear from them. I talk to some of them. I see their posts. Um, many of them listen to our podcast, right? Um, and I want to be de- very delicate and very respectful of them. They're smart people. Um, they're hardworking people. They are God-fearing people. And like myself, they grew up knowing the value of hard work and knowing um, the value of friends and family and trust they do the absolute best they can to get by. They love their children. And here's what I glean from them. They don't feel like um, they have to put on airs. They don't, have, they don't feel like they have to get rid of any part of themselves. They don't feel like they have to forget um, anything about being an American, they don't have to apologize for being from the South. They don't feel like Trump's going to hold them responsible for any of our nation's past indiscretions. They are tired of, as, as many would call them, the liberal elites, the academics, of which I probably slightly represent now, making them feel bad about themselves when honestly all they've ever known is hard work, love, their faith, their family, their friends. Like they don't see themselves as misogynistic. They don't see themselves as domestic terrorists. They don't see themselves as toxic or um, they don't see themselves the way Hillary Clinton described them as deplorable. Yeah, I'm really glad you. So that's. Brought, I, I, I'm really feel glad like you brought that up. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that. You know, I'm, I, I'm I, really I, glad you brought that that comment up because I think that's uh, that's an important point. I think a lot of Trump supporters, the tepid ones mm-hmm. and the all in, yeah. do feel aggrieved somehow. Mm-hmm. Do and I think that comment of deplor really reflected that. You know that. Played right into Trump's narrative. Yeah, if you're already having a bad day, you, right? Yeah. You're already having a bad day, bad life, bad year, whatever it is. You don't believe the cards have ever been in your favor. Exactly. You you've never felt privileged. Well, and th- now you're being told if you are straight, cis, male, white, um, have a job, uh, have kids who are healthy, have a car, doesn't matter what, it, what you've had to go through to get all that stuff. Doesn't matter how you're barely hanging on. You need to bend down and kiss the rings of the liberal elites and you need to be happy. Do you think that is a message that is out there in the in the far left, uh, in, on the political left, in the elite yes. camp? Do you think yeah. that's a message? I've felt it all do my life when I was growing up in South Carolina. Do you think it's 
um, is, it, is it overt or is it subtle? Is it, how is it there? It's uh, it's just because I've never heard anybody say it. It's both. Okay. Okay. It's both. It's it's a way that liberals talk to you, not with you. It's a way that academics uh, use their body language in almost a a judgmental way. It's it's the clothing. It's the way um, the tweed jacket. The everything. <laughs> it's the odd manner in which they carry themselves. Like, you, it's hard to articulate, but I see it. When I see it, I know it, right? Like, I absolutely know it. When I, It's cringy. To use my friend Phil McCaskey, um, his, his quote, he said that liberals are seen as do-gooders, squares, people that are the antithesis of fun. You like know, hippies? <laughs> well, yeah. I don't know. Phil McCaskey didn't have a problem with liberalism in general he didn't he had a problem with people pretending to be um more righteous than they really are smarter than they really are and again how dare you look down upon me how dare you make me feel like i'm less than a person i I understand how dare you you assume you've got my vote just because we're the same skin color or just because yeah I, I, so I wanted I, to mention that. I, I do understand that. And so I, do I don't understand. think they think Trump is smart. I don't think they necessarily think Trump is God-fearing. I don't think they think Trump I, is in shape. I don't, they just, not. right, they, none of that but stuff. I, 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 I definitely understand that. And there has always been in American political history this, this vein of populism mm-hmm. that some politicians have tried to tap into, have Mm -hmm. tapped into to varying degrees. Mm -hmm. But usually what happens in a healthy democracy is the parties, the political parties, stop that. And they they guard against that. I know a they lot only of Trump let it go so far. Maybe the primary, of, and then after that, they're like, "Okay, guys, let's come together." Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I know. And again, is that elitist? This idea of parties as gatekeepers? Yeah, perhaps. You mean civility? <laughs> Civility is not elitist, but sometimes it might be viewed. Well, as what's a, the point of a political party if not to? It's it's not there to give in to every whim. It's no. there to make sure that the candidates that represent it are representing good values. But it is strange, isn't it? It reminds me of a court of law where if you're a witness, a juror, I should say, and someone says something out of pocket, out of turn, that is just completely and utterly either false or beside the point, and the defense says, you know what? I object, Your Honor. The jury shouldn't hear that. That, sh- that has nothing to do with this case. And the judge says, you're right, uh, sustained. Um we're going to uh, strike that from the record. And it's as if the jury's supposed to go, you know what? That never happened. I'm not even going to let that figure into my deliberation. Now, stay with me. They used to be able to do that, though. It's, that's, that's still kind of an illusion. You really can't do that. Like, you can't strike that once you've heard it. Likewise, how long? I'm not a political scientist. I'm not a political historian. You're more of that, and maybe you can speak to this. But how long have we just accepted that primaries can be knockdown, drag out fights. That it's that it's not only okay, but it's actually expected. You're supposed to strike uh, strike one another and draw blood. You're supposed to like leave it all out there during the primary, and then somehow magically, we're supposed to strike all that from the record, 
and come together and go, oh, we were just acting. Now it's time to really govern like adults. So, I'll ask you. So when I was speaking about parties as gatekeepers, I was talking about before 1968. Okay, help me. 1968 was when the primary process began. Oh, really? 1968, was not. sorry, it began in 72 as a result of some of the chaos surrounding 68. And 68, that's the year Kennedy was shot, okay. uh, Robert Kennedy was shot mm-hmm. after winning the California primary. But primaries weren't the primary way in which we selected our presidential nominees. Uh, They had them. People ran in them, but they were... Some delegates were awarded based on primaries, but the vast majority were not. The parties would get together at the convention. They would figure out what direction they wanted to go, what horse they were going to back. These were, you know, this is the... The smoke-filled room. Right? So it wasn't like the people so were wh- selecting the candidate. No, it no, was the, more par- like the, the party. The was. party elites were. Okay. And so when you say, "Well, you can't strike that from the record," you heard of it. the The role of the party, to use your metaphor, would be to disallow from somebody from saying it in the first place. The judge. Yeah. So no, saying the thing that needed to be stricken. Oh wow. That's what parties were there wow. for, right? You can't say the awful thing that you might be thinking or. They feeling. were handling. They were managing. Absolutely. And they were going to pick the right candidate who wouldn't say those. Absolutely. Because civility it, was was I guess just assumed. That's like a, a bedrock. That's yeah. a principle that was sure. just assumed. Sure. Yeah. And then in seventy. That doesn't seem like that long ago. It wasn't. And then in seventy two. Okay. Right. The year uh, I was born. We we start with the the primary process. Uh, Jimmy Carter was really the first president in '76, the first candidate to use Iowa, New Hampshire, to use the early primary states to sort of catapult his candidacy. He was a very you know not a well known governor from a southern state, mm-hmm. um, but he used that primary to introduce himself to the American people, and candidates have done that ever since. Now the parties still had a big role to play. Um, they had. Uh, super delegates on both sides for a while. I think the Republicans got rid of theirs first. The Democrats kept some version of theirs. Um, the primaries have changed slightly ever since. But in the age of social media, you don't really need to build the same campaign infrastructure that you did before. And Iowa and New Hampshire, those primaries have sort of been nationalized themselves. So uh, I guess Trump... The idea of a Trump-type candidate, a celebrity-type candidate, really started to take shape, I think. Um, with President Obama, he was a celebrity-type candidate. His candidate, his candidacy became far bigger than anything he'd accomplished. Yeah, certainly bigger did, than him, right. right. And then in 16, sort of that same thing played out on the Republican side where this it was a movement. It was this big thing, and uh, it sort of took, took on a life. Uh, a life of its own. And I guess to a lesser extent, maybe Reagan as well, right? He was somewhat of a celebrity. Again, yeah. kind of a yeah. milquetoast celebrity. He wasn't a big-time uh, actor in Hollywood, but he was pretty well-known. Right, no, but it was the same. But same yeah, kinda, he, yeah, but I'd, I'd caution there. Mm-hmm. Reagan um, had done a number of things. He'd been involved in uh, Republican politics since the early 60s. I see. He didn't come out of he, nowhere. No, he, he was the didn't governor, just come out of Hollywood. He right? was the governor of California. Yeah, governor of I mean, he was, and Obama was just a state senator, right? He was a state senator. He'd been a senator for four mm-hmm. years, or actually been a senator for two two years when Before he started that, running. Before that, really just a, <laughs> a, a political activist or something, right? Before uh, that, he was, was just a, kind of was, out there canvassing. He was canvassing a community organizer, yeah, but a state senator. He's, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, certainly a very talented uh, and ambitious politician. That's yeah. fine, but uh, yeah. That, With those, a meteoric rise to fame. I mean... Yeah, but, you know, it, it, it does dovetail so nicely, doesn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. like 2000, 2004, you had 
uh, small dollar donations, campaigns had raised on campaign websites. So you had some of that, but in 2008, 2012, I mean, the digital campaign, the online campaign became as big as the uh, the traditional infrastructure mm -hmm. campaign. I remember in 08, Obama announcing his running mate via text to his supporters, which mm -hmm. was like, whoa, was just, you know, I, I believe it came, I had a six-month-old daughter. Mm -hmm. The text came at um, 5.30 in the morning. Thank that? you, uh, Mr. Mr. President. Yeah, I mean... That was, and that's cool, would, right? It's no, like... it wasn't cool because CNN had it. It leaked that it was going to be Joe Biden. So there was this big debate at uh. campaign headquarters. Do we wake up our supporters with the news like we wanted to or let CNN break it? Yeah. Uh, so they, they ended up releasing it. It might have been like 4.30 in the morning because it was a central time. But, yeah. um, you know, I, I do want to get back into... Uh, some of the more rabid Trump supporters. Mm -hmm. And I do want to talk about maybe some historical parallels and uh, the racial element to uh, the Trump effect. Yeah, let's do that right after break. They want a strong man. They want to own the libs. They want to take out their opponents. They don't want to hang out with people who look like me. They don't. So, yeah, we're back. Uh, if you've been listening uh, or if you haven't been listening, thanks for joining us. We're talking about the Trump effect and specifically kind of trying to focus in on what is this appeal that Trump supporters. Um, I mean, besides his incredibly to. good looks. Yeah, yeah. Besides this his incredibly guy good is looks dead and his, sexy and his, and his fit, felt body. What is it that people are drawn to? Right. Yeah. And again, uh, Nelson was saying on the other side, we have to be careful not to lump all of Trump supporters or followers into the same basket. Right. Some of them are, in fact, diehard. Um, rabid, almost uh, religious cult-like followers, but perhaps the overwhelming majority of them are a bit more tepid, a bit, bit more skeptical of Trump, But and that's what we're trying to sort of understand is, but nevertheless, they're going to vote for him, whether it be holding their nose, whether it be saying, well, the other, in this case, insert any uh, popular liberal you want, especially Joe Biden, um, they're not doing any better. In fact, they're doing worse you know, if, if you're worried about America, then you got to get rid of those woke liberal elite politicians first and foremost. And and Trump will just be one of many to come. Right. He's just a place. Uh, filler. You know, there have been Trump supporters I've heard recently during the primary who said that Trump is just Trump. Yeah, he's the just, MAGA movement is much bigger, bigger than, than him. him he's now. just a vehicle. He's a conduit. He's just a vehicle. Yeah. The MAGA yeah. movement. And that's why I said you kind of go back to that Tea Party, you know, mm -hmm. and. I did want to get into some of the the racial elements here because when you talk about American politics, race is an unavoidable subtopic. Mm -hmm. We have to address it. In 1900, the country was and remained an overwhelmingly white Judeo-Christian country. 88% of Americans were white, mm -hmm. uh, and they were either Catholic, Protestant, or, or Jewish. That was that was the reality. And um, so we are moving uh, more towards a multiracial, multi-ethnic absolutely. Uh, populace. And, and if we look back through history, we can see a parallel where that happened before. How so? And it was accompanied by civil unrest, um, by political movements, and by violence. But wasn't, isn't it true, the time period you're talking about in particular was when um, it was it was sort of into law. It was codified. It was... The, the disenfranchisement of people of color, and I guess you can even extend that to women, uh, for most of our history, was law. I mean, it was it was codified. Like I said, it was it was something that 
the what, the power. What time be. period do you think I'm speaking about? Oh, I'm this. thinking about 1900 until 1960s, 1970s. No, 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 no. I'm talking about the period where the law hadn't been written yet. I'm talking about Reconstruction in the American oh, South. Okay. And what we find is that states, um, and you know, put 1898 to the side, states okay. like North Carolina, mm-hmm. where the white population was still really dominant, right? Okay. Um, they had a lesser, a lower population of black people. Areas, mm-hmm. even within states, that the white population remained dominant, uh, but they introduced a new, let's say, 20% or 15% uh, African-American population mm-hmm. into the the civic life of the area. Yeah. No problem. By introduce, no. you mean people are now accepting of other groups I didn't say accepting. <laughs> I mean that they recognized a civic right to this new group to exist and participate. But 15%, 20% is not threatening to the majority. No. Areas in South Carolina, mm-hmm. areas in Mississippi, areas in Georgia, where the black population um, in some areas became the dominant population, mm-hmm. in some areas it was close to 50-50, mm-hmm. that, that was felt by the white population in the area the majority. as threatening mm-hmm. uh, and it was perceived as threatening and it was responded to as a threat it was responded to many times with violence yeah. um it's in areas the clan yeah. certainly presence, culminated within most of our lifetimes the lifetime of the listeners right at least their parents grandparents again around the 1960s uh, culminating yeah i would say that into the civil rights act um <clears throat> I, no, because I, I would say that we had much better race relations between 1866 and 1880. Mm-hmm. Um, even though, even though African Americans didn't have the same rights they they acquired in the 60s it, and didn't have the same, they, they, they weren't counted the same. They, and, they were protected militarily. Okay. No, they, they had, uh, you know, look at the 1866 Civil Rights Act, the 14th Amendment. Yeah, they couldn't the, vote, Nelson. That's what I'm saying. Uh, they could. They absolutely could. Mm. They they had the 15th Amendment. They, the, I mean, yeah, on paper, but Jim Crow didn't really start until after segregation ended. So you're talking about 1880, 1890. That's when you get Jim Crow, and you know you get a lack of rights. Here's an interesting uh, number for you because we you know mentioned 1898. Mm-hmm. 120,000 uh, blacks could vote in North Carolina mm-hmm. in 1898. Mm-hmm. In 1900, fewer than 6,000 blacks could vote in so North Carolina. The, yes, yeah. following so, the coup d'état. In 1898, Wilmington. Well, it's because it, it didn't just—it wasn't just kept in Wilmington. It was it spread, yeah. Yeah, you know, it was, and the coup itself didn't spread, but the idea that we have to get black voters off the rolls—we yeah. can't allow we these. We got to get black politicians really. out of office. We got to get black um, um, uh, landowners or business owners, yes. yeah, out of power. So, if you follow uh, the population um, of dynamics, yeah. yeah, the population percentage of black to white people. Uh, the closer it gets to 50-50 or a black majority, the more Unrest. violent and active the Klan was mm. during the Reconstruction period. Well, you know, I want to get to today, right? Because that's what I know most about. And most of my listeners, people I grew up with, are living in today, right? They've been born in the 1960s, 70s, and here they are, 50, 60 years old. I know for a fact, having lived in South Carolina um, for 17 years of my life, and again, many of our listeners, having lived there all their lives, now 50, 60 years old, they would say, yeah, in our own hometown, it's been closer to 50-50, black and white, as long as we can remember. 
from elementary school to now. And we haven't had um, any of this toxicity that's described. We haven't had any of these race problems that's described. We haven't had mass movements in our community. We haven't had the Klan come through. Now, some of my African-American friends and listeners might disagree with me, but I, I didn't see problems with race growing up the same way, again, the elites describe the South. Yeah. I really didn't. And, and so and I should be, you know, I should clarify, when I'm talking about the Klan, I'm not saying that the MAGA movement in particular or the moment we find ourselves like is, in, is, is violent. Reestablishing the Klan or is violent. No, yeah. no, no, I'm not saying or it's violent. Or that the followers are. I'm, I'm saying there is a response of... No, no, no. I need to maintain mm-hmm. the things that I have and the right. things that I value, which you spoke to yeah, earlier, yeah. this idea of it's okay to be a white Southern yeah, redneck yeah, yeah. who works his ass so off to a, get the things And so he there's wants. a tinge of racism. And maybe, again, is it, is it racism that it's tinged with or is it protectionism? I think is it's it, protectionism. Is it isolationism? I don't is think it, it hinges on this idea of one race being better or worse mm-hmm, than another. Yeah. I think it's protectionism. Mm-hmm. And so if you already live in a community where there are not a lot of minorities and you start saying, I want to make the world like my community, you, one couldn't help but to assume what that means, at least in part, is that you want to keep it really white, right? Well, maybe you, and maybe really white you, like you. Maybe but, you can speak to that from a psychological yeah. perspective. Is there a desire? Is there something innate about in us wanting and them to... About protecting your yeah, own? Yeah, protecting Absol- your own. Like, well, what absolutely. is that? Where does that come from? What part of the brain is that? Well, I think it's the some of the older parts of the brain, the, the part of the brain that evolved. The limbic brain. First, yeah, way more limbic. I mean, it's basically um, a, a set of structures that operate, if you want to liken it to a mathematical algorithm, operate on this algorithm that is very um, quick. Uh, what the famous economist Danny Kahneman, Nobel Prize winning economist, calls um, system one. He said it's fast, it's intuitive. It's life-sustaining, but it doesn't always get things right. It's just kind of the best guess in the moment. And that's all we had throughout most of evolutionary history, right? We didn't have these slow, deliberative circuits that we liken to sort of the cortex or the frontal part of the brain. We had these old um, limbic midbrain structures for most part. We still have those, by the way. But we just well, have yeah. the we just have the sexy the stuff on top, right? We have that yeah. on top that's supposed to try to keep all that stuff at the bottom at bay. And again, I kind of liken the stuff at the top to the liberal elites, right? Like, no <laughs> matter how hungry you are, no matter how poor you feel, no matter how disenfranchised you feel, no matter how <sighs> upset you get, there are those fancy liberals, that cortex saying, "Oh, but you've got it pretty good." You know, it's so uh, interesting that we're circling around this, right? Mm-hmm. Because politics is, in in essence, it's a battle of resources, right? Yeah. Deciding and divvying up who gets I'm what, when and how. I'm glad you said that. Yeah, yeah. And, and, I asked you that a, a long time ago. I said, yeah. what is so sexy about politics? What is at its heart? What is politics? But that, and, and you describe it as that, right? And, and Back if, up and, and if, say that again, if yeah, you would. Yeah, so, so politics, at, it, it's at the essence of politics yeah. at its heart is a battle of shared resources, mm-hmm. deciding who gets what. When and how, okay. right? And so there, it's always going to be contentious. Mm-hmm. Always, it's always going to be us versus. We them. might have agreements within that contention. It might be like, oh, okay, well, that, that works out fine. Mm-hmm. But it always starts as some sort of disagreement or contention. Mm-hmm. So it's a perpetual negotiation. Yes, it has to be. And and, and how does President Trump talk about? 
negotiation. Oh, that's right? for losers. It, it, exactly. There's <laughs> winners and losers. There's right. people losers. who are screwing you over and people who are taking behind. and not helping and not, yeah. not giving back. They're, and then they're people uh, who help you. So yeah. it's, it's very either or. It's, it's all or nothing with President Trump. Mm, You're either getting screwed over by China or mm. China is There's a friend. There's no nuance. There's no complexity. There's no complexity. Yeah. And I think people... A lot of people look at that and say, that's how I feel, too. Yeah. That's how I understand things. Mm -hmm. Finally, somebody's speaking up for people like me. Yeah, 100 percent. Um, well, if and when you ask me what my thoughts are as a psychology person, I'd like to speak directly to what you just brought up. Yeah. Yeah. Please explain that. Like expound on that a little bit. So <clears throat> I am by training. um, a person interested in clinical psychology. However, I still have um, other interests. And, and one of the things that I've been interested in and I um, occasionally teach is developmental psychology. And all that is is a look at the lifespan from before birth all the way to death, specifically looking at physical development changes, right? Psychological development changes, um, social, I mean, you name it. It's sort of a, a psycho-biological, emotional lens through which we look at the whole lifespan. And one of the things I learned many, many years ago in my undergraduate was a thing called parenting style. It seems that 40 or 50 years ago, a lady named Diane Bomerin was very interested in learning about the style of parents the style of parents um, that are out there in, in the U.S. in particular. And she found that, you know, there were different ways or styles, um, approaches to being a parent. And she lumped them into a, a couple of categories. Uh, one was a neglectful parent. Uh, permissive. <laughs> it, was, it was not really neglectful. It was more permissive, right? You just kind of be your kid's friend from the beginning to the oh, end. Yeah, you let yeah, them do whatever yeah, they want. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, and if they ask for it and you can do it, you do it, right? And you really can't be bothered with parenting too much. You don't want to get into the nuance. You don't want to parent so much. Maybe you're working too hard. Maybe you're preoccupied. Maybe you're young and don't know any better and you're raising kids and you're a kid yourself, whatever. So let's say that made up 10 or 15% of parents. I may be actually overshooting it. I'm not a developmental psychologist. The, um, the, the, another parenting style she found was called the authoritative parent. And she saw this one as the best parent. Oh, and, really? And you, and, yeah, and you can already <laughs> see sort of the liberalism that's tinged in this, right? Sure. Um, I don't know that Diane Baumarin was a, a liberal or an outspoken progressive in and of herself, but she was, a, by today's standard, a, an academic, so I guess she was. She said the authoritative parents are more diplomatic. They are more couth. They're more progressive. They're more... You know, I'm going to parent. And that, why are they called authoritative? Uh, I'll, give it to, I'll give it to you. No, no, no. no. They're, they're authoritative in the sense that they do know a little bit more. They can help you find the answers. They are good at negotiating. They're good at diplomacy. They are teachers. They're parents. They're friends. They're all of it, right? They wear all the hats. You sound like you're talking about me. Yeah. So, <laughs> so what happens is, you know, the kid gets in trouble and you and um, the kid decides, well, was there a rule about that? Was that rule clear? Um, what should the punishment be if you need to create a rule, you guys negotiate? And so they have to be held responsible, but you remind them as to why. 
and right, how this right. is going to affect them long term. It's a teaching moment, right? Yeah, sure. You're not there to just make them fear you. You're there to make them trust, respect the whole process. Yeah, got it. And the and the belief, um, according to Diane Bomberman's research, was that maybe I don't know fifty percent, sixty percent of Americans were doing this. Good. Great. Then she found a third category. Uh, maybe this third category represented twice as much as the permissive, maybe three times as much. It wasn't as much as the authoritative, right? It wasn't 50 or 60%, but maybe let's say it was 25, 30. And these I were can called, guess where these are. <laughs> these were called, you, you can probably guess. Yeah, probably authoritarian parents. They were called authoritarian parents. Okay. <laughs> and who were these authoritarian parents? Well, she never said who they were religiously or politically, right? But you might actually start to imagine who they were. She said, these are people who say, do what I say, do it now or else. (laughs) And the idea is that you get some pretty fast results. Yeah. Now, the belief was you got fast results because it was a really good way to parent. Right? I mean, look, look at these authoritative parents. They're not getting the results I'm getting immediately. Yeah. They're sitting there negotiating for an hour with their kids about bedtime. I just say go to bed now, or it's or an I'm ass throw you out. It's an yeah. ass woman, or I'm gonna throw you outside. Oh, you don't want to do what I say? Then I'm gonna take your toy and crush it in front of you, right? Yeah, and it's I'm not gonna break your you, phone. And by the way, yeah. don't cry when I'm spanking you, or else I'll give you something to cry about. This is hurting me more than it's hurting you. I got to teach you a lesson. My my first job as a parent is to make sure I teach you how to be a Good adult. So right? if I was so it spared the rod, spoil the child, getting yeah, right, right back to yeah, sort of old, parenting one oh one. It's old pretty school. old school, yeah, right? Yeah. Now, what do we think? I mean, I don't have any empirical data, but what do we think the average working class southerner grew up with? Uh, was I, it more permissive, do we think? Was it more authoritative? I, mean, I would guess it was more authoritative authoritarian. And yet, but even in my own household, even in my own household. Right, it was more authoritarian, especially from my dad. Yeah, right. Yeah. My I dad did, threw I, a cup of water on me when yeah. I didn't get up out of bed. My dad threw a couple of leather belts on my backside. Right now, <laughs> I look back on that and I wonder: Am I the person I am now because he did that to me, or in spite of it? I like to believe that I'm the person I am now. By the way, a person who's never spanked his kids don't feel like I have to. Never spanked. Never. Never spanked. So I actually believe I'm the person I am in spite of some of the parenting. I would call them, I don't want to call them blunders or mistakes, but I think they were overkill, so to speak. True, I don't yeah, think it was necessary. Yeah. You probably could have found something else. Now, being raised poor, I didn't have a whole lot for him to take away. So maybe it was easy. <laughs> you know, you look around my house and you go, well, I could spank my kid really quickly, or I could just take away their Nintendo Switch, or I could take away their access to the internet, or I could take away their bike or their four-wheeler, or their, right? There's so many things yeah, my yeah, kids yeah. have and love that maybe it's just easier being authoritative. I don't know. Yeah. Author- well, authoritative for well, me. Well, you know, it's interesting that you're talking about this in a political context because there is a, a not, I don't want to call it a theory, but there is language uh, about Democrats and Republicans. Well, really quickly before I forget, uh, the, the, the sort of the, the, um, the, the punchline, if you will. Perhaps in sort of a psychoanalytic Freudian type way. I don't typically do this, right? In kind of a family dynamics theory way. Trump, Trump's authoritarianism, whether you believe it's explicit or you believe it's just, you know, who he is based on his upbringing or maybe who he's become because of his handlers, it might be triggering, especially working class cis 
transgender males from the South, it may be triggering people from rural America. Yeah, definitely. Who grew up definitely. in that kind of family dynamic. It might be triggering them. And so they might be, it might be a recapitulation of the old family dynamics. I want to say this. I'm not suggesting that if your parent rules with an iron fist, it's bad in and of itself. I'm not suggesting that it's, it's no, neglect or abuse, right? Right, right? I think a lot, right. of, a lot of liberals do. No, you leave no, a bruise no, no. or you, you know, that's spank, child abuse. Yeah, you spank, yeah, that's, that's child abuse. Yeah, they yeah. should come in and investigate you if your kid says that they are scared of dad, right? What I'm saying, however, is that it's just the way it was. And it does seem like it worked because, again, 99.999% of my friends from Abbeville, South Carolina, are good people. And I would dare say 90% of them were whipped. Okay, but wait a minute. Now, and so now they are putting those two together. They're putting those two further. together. They're saying, would you, I am the person I am because I was whipped. I am the person I am because I feared my parents or I feared God or I feared whatever else. I am part of that one that left, went to college have not been back, and I can kind of see both sides. Would you say, and I, I definitely don't think it's a, you know, like you said, it's not a one for one. It's right. not, I was whipped, I'm a Trump supporter right, or right, something. Right, right. No. Now, would you say that the 99.9% included both white and black families? Yeah. Because yeah. In fact, it is interesting think, well, that Trump's support among black coming, Americans is growing, is growing as right? well as Hispanics as, as well as I can Hispanics. actually speak to that as well a lady named Vicki Williams who was a professor at a um, at Georgia when I was a grad student Vicki I would love it if you were um, listening to the show and could call me sometime I'd love to talk to you more about this but Vicki Williams research when she was a PhD candidate um, she was looking at parenting style she was a developmental psychologist and I learned when she started teaching at my school after she got her PhD that she had been looking at um, African-American uh, families' parenting styles. And she had found a higher-than-expected percentage of African-American parents were using an authoritarian style. Now, there are lots of explanations for why this was. It was thought to be, again, fast, simple, easy could to be, follow, lazy. You said it could be connected it's, to it's, poverty. It's, it's, more, it's more about... Um, the idea was that it was... Again, lazy, easy, fast, quick, not a lot of thought. Um, it could be administered cheaply, right? Right, it, right, sure. And, and, but she found, yes, she found exactly that, Nelson. People who were poor, people who were in working-class families, people, African-Americans who were living in uh, places where it was dangerous to go outside. There was yeah, gang sure. uh, influence outside, maybe living in housing, um, what are they called? Um, Projects. I don't want to call it projects. They, they call it subsidized housing, housing, whatever. Yeah, subsidized housing. But again, um, she found that parents who were raising children in more precarious circumstances, right, financially, environmentally, were using authoritarian style parenting styles. And when they were asked, they would explain things like, I can't negotiate. I don't have the time for that. The risk is too great for showing my kids systematically why what I'm saying matters. I have to make them fear they me just have to because get the it. consequences just are yep. you don't survive, right? So right. it's, it's kind of like the most liberal parents on this earth, if they saw their kids running out into traffic and all they had to stop them was a BB gun, they might shoot their kid. Or if they had a ball, they might throw the ball at their kid, right? By any means necessary to stop something worse from happening. Right. 
again, it's a privilege, Vicki Williams might say. To be authoritative. Right. Yeah, that makes and sense. And so that might be what liberals don't understand, is that it's a privilege to even think the way liberals do. It's a privilege well, to live the way liberals it, do. I think that speaks to the fraying coalition a little bit of you know the Democratic Party, is that you have this white liberal elite, very, very privileged group. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like the values that that group has, the ideas that they have, the things that they want to accomplish are not necessarily the things that the, the black coalition in the Democratic Party wants to accomplish or the Hispanic coalition that has made up the Democratic Party wants to accomplish. So I, I do think there is that divergence that you're... And what's worse is they just assume that you will vote for them because you always have, I guess. Yes, that's so true. And that, that is, is so true. so irresponsible. It's so this, uh, how, how would I say it? it it's, it's a yucky feeling. If I'm Hispanic or if I'm a it's black. Condescending. It's condescending. It's condescending. That's the word I'm thinking about. It's condescending. And yeah. I think, uh, I think you know, President Trump, either through, uh, you know, either directly, either with, with forethought and with conscience or just accidentally mm-hmm. is... is Somehow, is somehow tapping into that. Yeah. Um, so that's interesting. So having said all that, I think we're. Uh, I think we've figured out the problem. You Not the so? problem. I think, think we've we figured out. I think. I think we, but do you feel? Um, do you feel better about the the effect of Donald Trump? Do you feel? Because you know, as a political scientist, I worry, you worry deeply. Yeah. Am about I as worried? Since I know the people Since that you know seem to like this, him and support him. I mean, do you see a threat to the democratic order, to the democratic system? When somebody says, literally, uh, we need to suspend the Constitution to address these type of problems. Mm-hmm. Um, or are you more concerned because you understand the support that is behind this movement? That's a great question. I really need to think about that and be measured with my response. I don't want to just come right off the cuff and offend anyone or be misunderstood. So this is probably one of the first times you've made me speechless. Um, What I can say for those that that feel like I should say something uh, is this. I believe that the people I know and I grew up with are good people. I don't believe they would hurt anybody purposefully. I don't even know that they'd hurt anybody accidentally. I think because at the end of the day, many of them are about attention and bluster like most of us. I say this with all sincerity. My grandpa, rest his soul, um, he would be about 93 years old today if he were still alive. I can't think of a better man. Most people that knew him, liberal or conservative, MAGA or ultra-liberal, probably would say the same about him. However, if you didn't know him at all, but you only looked at the surface of the man, you might think he was simple, vile, a deplorable. Mm -hmm. But having known him, not just having been his grandson, but having known him and having really, you know, long drawn out conversations about everything from politics to God to how you should treat people to marriage, I can tell you that he had a soul. He loved people. Um... He believed in capitalism, free markets. He believed in community. He believed in, you know, all of the things that both liberals and conservatives espouse. Um, Same way with my father, same way with many of my relatives and many, again, of my friends and their relatives. 
they like simple answers because they genuinely believe it is simple. They believe that, you know, college and elites and liberalism and wokeism is just overcomplicating things. Again, my father-in-law, rest his soul, he was a very liberal guy, very educated guy. Grew up in the South, North Carolina, moved to Indiana, back to North Carolina, but at his heart, he believed things were simple too. He really did believe that if you steal, you just chop off someone's hand. You know, he really did believe that the worst thing you could ever do is lie to him. He really did believe that there were um, more opportunities for rich people than poor people. He really did believe that both Democrats and Republicans didn't really care about the working class. He really did believe all of these things that so many of us believe. And so will Trump's followers take us down a road of authoritarianism? Will there be an autocracy? Will there be violence? Will we go back and start imprisoning people that don't look like us and start enslaving people? I don't want to believe that's true. I don't think that's possible. I really don't. Again, if it is, I don't think it's going to come from these people I know and love and respect from my hometown, who are, by the way, pretty simple folk, God-fearing, and who really do believe in Donald Trump. Yeah, sure, um, sure. But I don't think they would. Just, again, growing up with them all my life. I, but there are there are some people who do believe that the the country needs a cleansing, a, a, a beating, yeah. a, a strong man. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, again, I've seen supporters. But I don't know. Yes, I don't know if it's metaphorical or if it's legit. Look, here's the thing I would say: Is there a subsection of people who are really toxic, violent, misogynistic, racist, KKK, whatever? Right? Yes. Do they? come out of um, the South, perhaps. But do, you also, but, said, but do you also find them in other places? Oh, yeah. Do, you, oh, do yeah. they come out of conservative or now MAGA uh, um, um, quadrants, so to speak? Yes, but they also come out of other places, right? So, yeah. so hmm. we know they're everywhere. I don't want to believe there's just necessarily that many more of them. Again, I believe there's a lot of bluster. There's a lot of chest pounding. But I don't know that it's genuine like i don't know that it's sincere when someone says build a wall and don't let anybody in our country but now i don't even think the average person who says that really means or understands it i can hear my grandpa saying something like that right now but, but now they are talking about you know in a second term using deadly force at the border yeah and do you think that the people who today are as saying as build keep, a wall maybe if we keep it are gonna be like oh well it's necessary. If they can keep it. It's a slow drip If they can sometimes. keep it dark, if they can keep it away from people's vision like they do the death penalty, yeah, maybe it can happen. Yeah. Like I don't think people would support the death penalty if they watch people die. That's why they do it under the cloak of night and they do it with just a couple of witnesses. I don't think sure, sure. average person. But, yeah, I know what you're saying. Um, recently, the Young Turks uh, went oh, to I New Hampshire. The Turks, yeah. Yeah. They went to New Hampshire and were asking some of Trump's voters uh, uh, a simple question. Let me play this uh, for you. 
Would you rather have four years of Donald Trump as a dictator or four years of President Biden reelected? You, you know, you don't have to like the words that come out of the man's mouth, but sometimes in life we all need a good paddling from the principal to, to set our life on the right track. And this country does need a little bit of that. It, we need a little paddling. I mean, I was a problem child growing up and it took a good leadership to set me straight. So I, I think our country does need some of that. So I, I hands down believe people wanted it four years ago, three years ago. So. And Nelson, I don't think he literally means we need a dictator, but he does believe in corporal punishment. Sure. Right? And he reminds me of everyone I grew up with right now. He reminds me of everyone's father that I grew up with. He looks like just your average dad, your blue-collar American, doesn't and, he? And I totally agree with you. Yeah. I don't think people want executions at the board. Nah. But here's here's where I get concerned yeah. is a lot of people don't really understand, um, especially people who don't have time to understand, mm -hmm. how complex uh, our system of government is and, and how vulnerable it can be. Yeah. So where today you might say, I need a little paddling. And tomorrow, tomorrow more. and tomorrow the president says, okay, well, the election was stolen, so now we have to go and seize voting machines. Mm -hmm. Take 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 back voting our, machines from states. Well, maybe that's maybe that's a little harder than I wanted the paddle, but that's still that's still, still okay. in in the Can vein okay. of Yeah. Yeah, and you are right. I mean, again, we did in fact see something similar to that happen. Uh, we got really close to that happening on January sixth. Sure. Right? Um, but again, I would say most of the people there um, were probably relatively normal, run-of-the-mill Americans, at least the ones standing out. I can, yeah, I can believe they, that. That's definitely that. true. I can believe it. The ones that stormed the Capitol, they are the extremists. And again, I think what worries most people is they don't know how many, how many of those type people are out there. And maybe worse, how many people who are not extreme like this guy we just heard from from New Hampshire, could be made extreme. Well, that's, what would that, it take that's to get the them to go that's into the, the Capitol? That's right? the scary thing is yeah. if you look at the people who went in and have been charged, mm -hmm. most of them weren't seem pretty normal. Most of them weren't even political a year mm -hmm. ago or yeah. two years ago. Now that's a whole other question, right? Right. I mean, so that's sort of maybe that's sort of well, speaking to some of this effect. Yeah, maybe that is. So, uh, you ready for it? I am ready for the diagnosis of the. Trump effect. But before we get there, I do want to, I, I want to echo your thanks earlier for, for our listeners. And B, I do want to emphasize that whatever your political beliefs, this in no way was intended to belittle or to make fun of. Or to cheerlead for this, this, is, this is a legitimate exploration of a question that a lot of people have, which is why yeah. do people support somebody who has what I would say are obvious Character flaws. I think most people would mm -hmm. agree there's obvious character flaws. Obvious, obviously so different than anything we've had before. Well, what I wanted to do is for so many of my listeners, both the ones that have been listening as well as the ones that maybe will listen to this one and maybe um, many others afterwards, is I wanted to model the kind of discourse that we engage in in the classroom. I guess I want to give people a sense of what a classroom looks like in college, at least my college classrooms. Right? Yeah, yeah. A lot of people think it's indoctrination. A lot of people think, oh, my God, well, if you are a liberal, how could you ever say anything nice or neutral, Jason, about 
quote the other side. And I hope people realize how easy it was for me today to just dialogue, even though we are too don't admitted, don't say safe space. We're too admitted. <laughs> admittedly, we're too pretty progressive, tolerant, liberal Democrats here. But it's not really that hard to find common ground. It's not really that hard to understand if you're willing to ask the sincere, honest question, why? Yeah. You know? So what's the diagnosis? So it's tempting because of my background in education, because of the circles I've run in, because of the podcast and the people I listen to, to sort of fall into the same trap that everybody else does. Let's try to understand Donald Trump. Let's try to break down, dissect his appeal. One of my favorite commentarists, um, Scott Adams, he's a political science uh, professor, I think, from NYU. He writes and speaks pretty eloquently and very matter-of-factly as well. And he says that Trump is a master salesman, persuader, that the reason Trump has such appeal is because he's using techniques, he's using an approach that is just spot on, 100%, perfect persuasion. And I have to admit, I look at Trump and I think to myself, the absolute opposite. Nothing he says, nothing he does, nothing about the man from his ill-fitting suits to his weird bronzed skin, to his chubby little glistening hands, make me believe anything he says. So he's not persuasive to you. No. In (laughs) fact, it's the direct opposite. Not only that, I don't believe there's anything virtuous about him. I don't believe that any human virtue that we aspire to, wisdom, curiosity, um, tolerance, um, community, anything, I don't believe there's any there there. So you may wonder, how does he do it? Well, one of my favorite things to think about, watch, and use as an analogy in my classrooms is magic. Specifically, prestidigitation. Uh, This is the fancy word for a sleight of hand. And I don't know if you've ever really thought about what it takes to be a good magician, especially a prestidigitator, a sleight of hand magician. Is this like a vanish? Is that what we're talking about? Yeah. Okay. But what it takes is three components. The first component is called the show, right? And the show is, let me see your cards. Let me see your hands. Let me see your hat. In Donald Trump's case, let me see the man. Let me see your riches. Let me see the Trump tower. Let me see your friends. Let me see you come down that gold elevator, escalator. Mm. That was the show. Then there's the turn. And the turn is seemingly the trick, right? It's you saw there was nothing in the hat, but I just pulled a rabbit out. You saw I was not a politician. You saw all the polls said there's no way I'm going to beat any politician. You saw the Access Hollywood tape, me saying all these vulgar things about women. You've seen all the horrible press about me. You know who I am. I've shown you my little hands. But the turn was, I won the motherfucking election. Now, there's a third part. And we don't always get it. We're not always sure because most magicians never tell that third part. And it's called the prestige. 
It's when a magician pulls the curtain back and says, you didn't really see what you thought you saw. Let me show you the secret sauce. Let me show you how I did it. Let me show you my trick. Trump clearly has never shown his trick. Liberals have been running crazy, scratching their heads, screaming into the ether, writing op-eds, going on MSNBC and CNN, and basically... Screaming it's not real. Screaming it's not real, or the opposite, telling you how simple it is. It's this, it's that. Again, Scott Adams, a great mind, says it's he's got persuasive skills. Others are like, well, he's secretly God-fearing, so I love him. Others are like, he's a self-made millionaire. Others are like, oh, he's a businessman. Others are like, oh, he's got a machine behind him. Others are like, oh, he's good at social media. Others are like, he tells it like it is. Others are like, he's every man. Others are like, I see myself in him. Others are like, oh, he's like my dad who was an authoritarian who spanked. Bullshit. What if? What if? What 50% of people who support him, believe him, follow him, the 50% that are going to vote for him again this November, what if they know something nobody else does? That there is no prestige. There is no trick. Donald Trump is who he is. He has done what he said. He is who he claims to be. Nothing more. Nothing less. And maybe... It's because this guy is seemingly devoid of virtue, specifically righteousness, righteous indignation, that his voters feel comfortable, right? Because he doesn't judge them. He can't. He's got nothing. He's got no moral superiority. He can judge his rivals. But notice he hardly ever, ever points out anybody's moral shortcomings it's always you're dumb, you're a rube, you're ugly, you're stupid. Well, Biden is a sleaze. Sleaze, sleepy, No, no, little. I'm saying he, he says Biden's corrupt. Yeah, but I'm saying morally, he never talks about voters, especially not his own, yeah. from a moral high ground. Again, because he can't. As Sam Harris said in his podcast last year, 50% of voters know Trump is a fat, bellicose, grab him in the pussy, Mexico's going to build the wall, Jesus. And again, like I've said, but he's there, Jesus. My diagnosis is Trump's a magician, except he's not using magic. Nelson, I appreciate you coming on today with me. Yeah, it's a fun episode, man. And uh, I hope this message resonates with all of our listeners. I hope that everybody can take something from today. I know I have. Um, and I hope all of the people from Abbeville, South Carolina, know I love you and respect you, always have, always will. And I want Trump's voters, supporters, fans to know, man, I love you and respect you as well. And uh, if and when Trump wins the next election, I'll shake your hand and say congratulations. But I would ask you one thing. Always remember, always remember that just because I may sound a little different, I may look a little different, and I may believe things a little differently than you. We are all Americans. We are all citizens of this planet. 
we are all God's children. Absolutely. And on that note, uh, please, not just because Taylor Swift tells you to, but uh, no matter who you vote for as a political scientist, please, this November, this March, get out there and cast your ballot for whoever you'd like. Yeah, please do. We'll see you next time.